This is Outside Shots, a college basketball betting podcast with Eli Hershkovich. Seven seconds to go. Three-pointer. Covering game-by-game odds and futures markets. It's Outside Shots, presented by the Lions. Another edition, the final edition of Outside Shots, presented by TheLines.com. My name is Eli Herskovich. You can follow me on Twitter at Eli Herskovich, and you can follow The Lines on Twitter at TheLinesUS. Remember to give the video a thumbs up, subscribe, and ring that bell to get notifications whenever The Lines releases a new sports betting video on any market, including college basketball. The national championship game is tonight between UConn and San Diego State. The Huskies about a seven and a half point favorite total around 132 and the Aztecs sitting around plus 300 on the money line and nobody better to break it down with than the former division one men's basketball coach for 21 years. He coached Marquette to a final four back in 2003 that Dwayne Wade Golden Eagles team Tom Crean happy to join be joined by Tom Crean. How's it going today Tom? Good 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 to be with you so thanks for having me. Yeah of course and Let's start off with your connection to Dan Hurley and this UConn Huskies team and a number four seed that made a deep NCAA tournament run, obviously, and probably under-seeded considering they're under undefeated against non-conference opponents this year and blitzing pretty much all of them by double figures. So why don't you break down a little bit your connection to Dan Hurley and what your thoughts have been on UConn's run to get to the championship game. Well, I've known Dan actually 30 years ago, competed against them when I was at Western Kentucky and they were at Seton Hall in the NCAA tournament. But I've known Dan as a coach, more importantly, because he was at St. Benedict's uh, as the head coach. And we recruited there and we had David Kubian, uh, who played for us at Marquette. And Marquette fans will remember him. And we had Dwight Burke who was a part of the class with Dominique James, Wesley Matthews, and Jarrell McNeil. So I got to see him when he was starting out as a coach, when he was building his career, and then it followed him and and remained in touch, and I'm a big fan. And I've known Tom Moore uh, on his staff for a long time, have coached against Kamani Young. Uh, Luke Murray is a good coach. I mean, it's uh, their staff. You know, what I've enjoyed the most from their team has been their level of improvement this year. I think one of the things that stands out about the Final Four with all four of the teams was the level of how much they got better, not only from one year to the next, especially in the case of UConn and especially in the case of Miami. I didn't know Florida Atlantic as much from a year ago. Uh, but watching San Diego State, Florida Atlantic, UConn, Miami, from the beginning of the year to where they are now, there's no question that those teams have gotten better. They've gotten better with their skills. They've gotten better with their offhands or their footwork or their defensive abilities, their spacing, you name it, all those different things that have to happen. And it's its one thing for your team to get better at your team's system and scheme. It's another thing to get better during the season at your skill level. And I think that is exactly what's happened. And I know it's happened with UConn. And I think I see the same thing with San Diego State. So that's why it's a tribute to improvement that this Final Four has been the way that it's been. Yeah, and you've coached some of the best college basketball players over the last couple of decades. I mean, you go back to your 
Indiana team in the last decade and winning the Big Ten championship with that Yogi Ferrell team. And by the way, Trace Jackson Davis, I was digging into some of these numbers because I had an Indiana future this year and I was hoping that Xavier Johnson was going to come back. Obviously, unfortunately for the Hoosiers, he did not. But Trace Jackson Davis had a higher assist rate in Big Ten play than Yogi Ferrell did on your Big Ten championship regular season team going back to 2015-2016. So pretty wild just looking back. It is. But- that, that is amazing. A lot of that's because it's, it's amazing you say that because I thought Trace Jackson Davis, he definitely got better during the season. And um, it's just amazing to me when you watch how poor some of the double teams are, you know, in, in the different leagues. And the Big Ten is one of them. And, and how easy they make it for people to make the next play. Now, you got to have guys that are making those shots, but give Trace Jackson Davis a lot of credit because I thought one of the areas that he got better was delivery of the ball uh, out of the double team, playing then after the double team, uh, skipping the ball. He's one of the best skip passers. Uh, I thought Zach Eady was really good at this too. But Trace Jackson Davis was really, really good at skip passing. And the difference in Purdue and Indiana in many ways was when Purdue kicked it out of the post, they kept it going. When Indiana kicked it out of the post or when, when, when Trace Jackson Davis would drive the ball and then make the pass, his pass usually went into a shot. And, and that first pass went to a shot. So I can, as, as much as it's hard to fathom those numbers, I guess I can see it when you mention it because he delivered the ball to guys and it didn't get into a lot of movement after that. They made the shot. They took the shot. 100%. Now, going back to the point that you made, the individual improvement and collective improvement for a team like UConn and San Diego State. Let's go back to a year and a half ago or so when UConn was playing Auburn in one of their non-conference Thanksgiving tournaments and Jordan Hawkins, a freshman going back to last season, turned the ball over and just didn't look very in tune just at that sort of a level at a division one men's basketball level. And that happens with freshmen. And you think about the jump he's made this year and playing with the stomach bug going back to the final four against Miami on Saturday. Can you speak to some of his individual improvement and just how good of a shooter he is especially with that release point well let's start let's start with what you said with there, there's the two biggest areas that strength is a factor or lack of strength is a factor when you come into the college game in my opinion number one is on the ball defense and how easy it is to open up uh when somebody drives you and then the other one is your ball handling and it's and it's getting into situations where you you keep the dribble one dribble too long or two dribbles too long rather than one dribble earlier, or you drive into traffic and that strength just overwhelms you. I think those are the two areas that really affect young players. Young players have to learn the speed of the game. They have to learn the spacing. They have to learn how to not come into the game thinking shot first and shot second. They have to come into the game learning how to play without the ball and move the ball and not come in with that score first mentality. I think Hawkins has gotten real a lot better with that. Where I see him... He's so much better now going to his right. Uh, I mean, so much better now. He, his strength was going to his right and being able to play off of his left foot and really being able to, you know, go right, step in with that left, go up and shoot it. He was so much better earlier in the year on the right side of the floor or if he was coming from the left to the top where he has improved a lot is playing on that left side of the floor where he can also be going to his left where he's got to play off his right foot. And, and, and there's always the lead foot. You know, for right-handers, it's usually a left-right step in. 
and, and, and Hawkins has got that. But he's so much better on the other side of the floor right now because he can drive, he can make plays. But where he's really improved offensively is not just his range. It's taking good shots is, is, is a big one, but how he comes off screens. And UConn and San Diego State are two of the probably top, I don't want to say five, but I would put them at least in the top eight of screening teams in the country. I mean, San Diego State, they hit you. They screen you. They get you free. Well, UConn does a great job of that too. And sometimes the dribble handoff is like a screen or the handoff into the screen is like a double screen. And, and UConn is really, really good with that with the magnitude and my rate of sets that they run. So Hawkins has improved that. He's improved his shooting. He's off the screen. He's improved his decision-making. And he really, really has improved moving without the ball. And it's a perfect segue into the defensive matchup between UConn's offense, a top 63-point scoring rate, top 70 in that range against San Diego State. You mentioned they run a lot of ball screens offensively, but defensively against FAU, that was probably the concern, just going back to their ball screen defense, and FAU took advantage of that with their ability to space the floor. And UConn essentially goes four out with Sonogo in, and more so when Klingon is in, because we saw against Miami, Sonogo at this point in his collegiate career is not a terrible three-point shooter, shooting about 35% on the season, so better than terrible for that matter. But when you think about Dutcher and the Aztecs, semblance of a pack line defense and Plain drop coverage at times with Nathan Mensa and that individual matchup between Mensa and Sonogo we can get to in a second. But what do you make of the offense-defense matchup, especially with the ball screen defense that you hit on with UConn's attack against the Aztecs' elite defense? Well, both teams are tremendous three-point shooting defensive teams. And, and I think maybe UConn obviously relies on the three more than San Diego State does, but I don't think they need it to win. UConn was 19-31 from two the other day in the game on Saturday. And I think because of the improvement of Sonogo. Now, the one thing Sonogo still doesn't want is an early double. He doesn't want a double team that comes down when he starts dribbling the ball. He, he's, he's not mastered that yet. His seal is unbelievable. When he rolled... Oh, oh stop, stop, stop. My fault, my fault. <laughs> I accidentally bumped uh, my uh, rescue dog here. Sorry about that. Didn't know it was under my feet. So tell my <laughs> no wife, worries. but uh, um, Sonogo seals you like he he hits you and he hits you high. Right. So like when he rolls, it's impossible to get around him. I mean, he's so good at that. So like that negates some of your ball screen defense where you may have to worry about him rolling or how they're going to play that drop. Eventually, when he gets into the paint, he's going to be free, whether he slips it, whether he screens, whether it's a roll in place. Whatever it is. And I think having Caravan, I thought Caravan matchup with Miller would be in Miami's favor the other day, but they never took advantage of it. And in fact, it was the other way around. Caravan took advantage of the matchup with the way he moved without the ball and the threes that he got, because he's a very hard matchup for a four. So like I see tonight the fact that that San Diego State plays too big so much that if UConn can keep that space inside of that pack line defense and keep stretching the defense. And Caravan, Caravan is not only a shooter, but he's a ball mover. That's going to pull somebody out of the paint. That's going to increase where maybe the ball screen game isn't invariably as, as important to UConn as the next pass, long closeout drive game is to UConn. And I think, I think UConn can play a lot of different ways in the pick and roll. I think they can get random screens. 
But I think in this day and age, for them to come off the screen to have to score without utilizing their bigs or without utilizing a shooter to swing it to, it's not as important. That's more important for their ball screen game, where I do think San Diego State relies on their ball screen game to get twos. You know, they're very good at the floater game. They're very good at the pull-up game. Um, They're very good at that. When you play in drop coverage, they're really, really comfortable shooting that pull-up because they know they may not get to the rim because they're going to have two people there ready to offensive rebound the ball. Uh, I think the pick-and-roll game is important. I think the three-point shooting game is important. But I think the offensive rebound game, whether it's the absolute numbers that turn into second shots or the percentage, and I think who goes to the free throw line and shoots 75% or better tonight is going to be the winner. And you mentioned Caravan defensively, which I think is something of note there because Jaden Ledee in this Aztecs front court. Now, you brought up on the other end, playing two bigs at times, especially when it's Mensa and a rope could cost them against the Huskies. But on the flip side of that, when Ledee especially to me or Johnson for that matter is in the game, could take advantage in. You would expect Dutcher to utilize that, especially with how often San Diego State employs that mid-range jump shot in the low post game too, right? Oh, they're incredibly comfortable. I mean, they're so comfortable. They not only run their offense at times three-point line and in, they run it elbowing in. And that's what they did to, to Creighton. I mean, they went through Ryan Kalkbrenner and Arthur Kaluma in that post like, like it was a guarantee game. I mean, they really did. I mean... And Kalkbrenner's a great shot blocker, but when you go into his body, I mean, it was over. And, 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 and I thought the other day, because Florida Atlantic did a good job, but Florida Atlantic, what they do, once you go into your move, they chest you up. They stand straight up. So it's the second move. It's the counter to the first move uh, that works out. And, and, and Florida Atlantic did a pretty good job of guarding that. It was the offensive rebounding uh, that put them back in the game. I think that's what... You know, the key is there, there's no way UConn can be given up offensive rebounds off free throws. And where there's it, guard rebounds are going to be absolutely paramount tonight. So it's not only the offensive rebounding numbers and the free throw shooting, which team is going to get the most guard rebounds? Because the break of, of UConn is unbelievable. And they do such a great job of running on turnovers. Well, they're going to have to run on misses because once you come back and you allow San Diego State to sit in there and establish that that length that they have and guard the ball with the physicality. I mean, they, they get up into your body and they make you go through them, okay? They don't make you go around them. They're not going to let you go around them. They try to make you go through them, which is a lot easier said than done because they play with a very wide stance. They get their hands out. They're a very, very physical on-the-ball defense. So the more that San Diego State turns that game into a half-court game, no matter what UConn's running, it's going to play in the hands of San Diego State. But UConn has got to continue to play the game no matter what happens inside of that half court. They can't allow their offense to get creeped in, or creep in, I should say, and just try to play, you know, three around two. They've got to continue to play four around one no matter what. And because they still shoot a lot of threes, they've got to be able to get long rebounds. One more angle that I want to hit on before getting your pick for tonight is turnovers, and it's Mm -hmm. something that I've been concerned about with UConn. Now, granted, I have a UConn national title feature going back to November. You mentioned last year's team, and we touched on that a bit, too. I was high on last year's Huskies team. Granted, lost in the first round in New Mexico State, but as you know, Coach, upsets happen in March, certainly, Mm -hmm. and this team was able to make a deep run 
like we've touched on a lot. But the bugaboo for the Huskies this year has been turnovers, especially with Tristan Newton and Andre Jackson, who can be a highlight reel in a negative sense or a very positive sense for UConn, especially in transition, which you broke down with the Huskies' ability to dominate in the fast break at times. And Jackson is a predominant reason as to why UConn excels on the go and on the move. But how much of an impact do you think San Diego State's ball pressure will ultimately make at NRG Stadium tonight? Well, I think that's, in my mind, that's how Miami got back in the game. Or that's where Miami gained confidence against UConn the other day. I don't know if necessarily got back, but they gained confidence because because UConn overpenetrated. And, and, and that's what happens. You can't do that against that type of defense. You, you've got to make the next pass, and you've got to make it quicker. Now, one way you get it inside and free up the inside game is you make the early kick, you make one more pass, now you create the long closeout. Now you've got a chance to get a one-on-one with Sonogo or with Klingon in there. But if you come in and you try to run your offense three-point line and in, if you try to jam it into the middle where they can get that kind of help, that plays right into San Diego State's uh, game. I think 12 turnovers or less is going to be a key for whoever wins tonight because both teams are going to turn it over at some point because the defenses are so good, the activity is so good. Those two teams, they attack the ball, okay? They don't, they don't try to stab at the ball. They don't try to just get in the gap and be there. Like Danny uses the term, you know, we're in the gaps. Well, they're in the gaps like piranhas. There's a big difference. You know, they're there, but those hands are active, right? And, when, and, and that's one of the reasons that, say, that, that, that uh, uh, UConn is so good defensively at creating those turnovers. Well, at the same time, that's what gets done to them some. And they've got to make sure that that team makes the next pass. It, San Diego State is much more comfortable playing a three-point line in and game in than UConn is. That's why the spacing of this game. Who wins the spacing battle? Does UConn continue to run their offense high? Do they pull Do they pull the, uh, uh, the San Diego State Aztecs out and force them to guard? Or do they rely on jumpers that are guarded, not guarded as much, and San Diego State is relying on their defensive rebound. And that's where the, the chess match of the game is going to be really, really interesting. But again, to your question, if they start driving the ball in traffic, UConn is going to be in trouble and San Diego State will take those passes. And you coached against Brian Dutcher going back to his assistant coaching days at Michigan when you were over at Michigan State. And Steve Fisher was then the head coach at Michigan, and obviously they came over to San Diego State together, that Kawhi Leonard team. This is a rematch of the 2011 Sweet 16 when Kawhi Leonard went up against Kemba Walker, and UConn obviously won the national championship that season. And, of course, Coach, got to get a pick from you tonight. And close game, lower scoring game, higher scoring game, if you catch my drift. What do you expect in the national championship between UConn and San Diego State? I think UConn will win it, but... I don't see it being uh, I, I don't see it being a, a double digit victory. I see it being closer. Now again, I take that back. If if one team decides that they're not going to block out, if one team becomes over reliant on challenge shots, uh, or if one team has 17, 18, 19 turnovers, right? But I think in this type of game, uh, I think UConn's transition is still a factor. I think their their end to end speed is ridiculous. I mean, it's really, really good. Now, okay, Sonogo is going to have to handle that double team. You know, one of the Steve Fisher, Brian Dutcher staples 
much like Kelvin Sampson has been that post-to-post double, the way that they come after you. And, and if that's employed tonight, Sonogo does not like when you bring traffic to the ball and he's put that ball on the ground. He's not, he doesn't like that. And so will he be able to score before the double team gets there? Will he be able to kick it out and repost? Those are all going to be little games within the game. But I still think over the course of a 40-minute game, it'll be UConn. And coach, we go back all the way, I think six, seven years ago when your former assistant coach at Indiana, Steve McLean, who's now an assistant at Texas under Rodney Terry. And that Longhorns team went through a lot this season. Don't need to get into the specifics there. Obviously, college basketball fans know what we're talking about, but I'm sure you still have a closer relationship to Steve and what he's accomplished and what the Longhorns accomplished this season. Obviously, unfortunate that Dylan DeSue missed the Elite Eight game against Miami and Texas obviously faltered offensively down the stretch against the Canes, a, a Canes team that got to the Final Four, and you touched on the UConn-Miami matchup a bit, which we saw play out on Saturday night with UConn winning that game by 13 points. But what did you make of Texas's ability to... They had the talent to make this sort of a run to an Elite Eight and a Final Four, and would have been a great game between UConn and Texas if we got it. But just going back to what Texas went through this entire season and that roster endured, how how uh, impressed were you with the Longhorns over the course of this season? Well, the first part you hit it. You hit it first. I mean, DeSue, I thought was playing his best basketball of the year because we coached against him at Georgia when he was at Vanderbilt, and you had to guard him as much at the three-point line as you did around the bucket. And his ability to make threes, his ability to make plays, they missed him. There's no doubt about that. But I think what they did, uh, especially the way it happened and that they had to play a game, I I think it could have gone a lot of different ways when they lost at home to Kansas State and gave up 116 points. And it could have gone a lot of different ways. It certainly could have gone in the wrong direction, but it went in the right direction. And I think Rodney Terry did a phenomenal job. I had, I got to see them practice a little bit in walkthroughs because I had a game for Westwood One and I had a game for ESPN. What I was so impressed with, and I'd not seen a Chris Beard practice, but I've talked to Chris Beard enough to know what's important to him in practice and talked to Steve enough. There were very, there were there, the similarities of what Chris Beard had put into that program, they still ran with every day. You know, it wasn't Chris Beard and it wasn't Chris Beard's voice, but it was the same formula. It was the same drills in a lot of ways as they put their own personality into it. But I think what Rodney did was phenomenal. I think he listened to his staff. I think he, I think the fact that he had a staff that didn't get rattled because they'd been head coaches, I think that was paramount. But I give a lot of credit to the players. I mean, there was a huge maturity. And you talk about guys that got better. I mean, Marcus Carr got better. Tyrese Hunter got better. Timmy Allen got better. Uh, Sir Jabari Rice, my goodness. I mean, he was really good. And, and I mean, really good. So they took an older group of some guys that had 2,000 points, 1,000 points. They blended some young guys in there. And they did a fantastic job. And the woulda, coulda, shoulda all comes down to if Dylan DeSue would have been in that game. Because it wouldn't have been shocking at all to see them go to Houston and they were close they were close without him but to have him in that lineup uh would have been would would have been a real plus for them but I think they did a great job I think they did a great job getting him signed with the contract and and putting him in there and I think after being there seeing that new building uh knowing the resources that they have knowing the state of Texas 
knowing where they're at capability-wise with the NIL and, and how that's such a destination school. It, it's not just a destination program, it's a destination school. I think there's no reason to believe that they're not going to be highly successful for a long time. Coach, you mentioned you've been at ESPN now ever since leaving Georgia, and you do a fantastic job with your in-game analysis, whether it's, of course, whether you're actually at the games or not, and you're one of the best analysts in college basketball, period. Do you expect to get back to coaching? I'm sure you get that question a lot, but at this point with the season wrapping up, I'm curious. Oh, yeah, I will. the, The good thing for me is I'm not in a rush. I was probably in too much of a rush last time. And there were other options besides Georgia. And, and I had, and, and, but, we, but we liked it. You know, we live in the South. And, but, but the thing, you just learn. You live and learn. And no, I don't want that to be my last coaching. You know, we had a really bad year that last year at Georgia. We still did some good things inside of there. We set the attendance record for two straight years. We had Nick Claxton and Anthony Edwards. We were just never able to put it together. We were never able really to put it together um, with shooting the ball, with the offense. But I made enough mistakes with staffing and things like that that I want to make sure that I do it again, but I'm not in a rush because the bottom line, you know, for me is the alignment. You know, the athletic director that hired me there, I thought he was going to be there four years. I thought I was going to go through it with him. And unfortunately, he was ready to retire after two. It's just, it's, it's hard when that happens. And I think you live and you learn, right? But what you learn, most importantly, is don't be in a rush. Don't settle. Uh, keep getting better. You know, this has been one of the greatest years that I can remember for learning so much, you know, about basketball, for learning so many different variances of it, for not only the television, but the preparation that goes into it, for learning different things, leadership, but for truly getting back to the most important key to leadership is to trust your instincts. And I want to go back when I see something, you know, and I got to be able to get the job, but I want to go back when I'm excited about it. And and it's not about the money and those things anymore as much as it's about the alignment. It's now is there money in the program, right? Is there NIL money? Is there a plan for that? Do you you have a place where people absolutely are locked in and want to help you be successful running your program? Because uh, I love coaching and I don't see myself as anything other than a coach, even though I've loved the television. But I feel like if I get better as a coach every day by what I learn, then I'm going to be better on television or I'm going to be better in a situation like we have right now. If I feel like I'm ever not excited to learn, then I don't want to do any of that. I'll go into another walk of life. But I love the fact that I'm learning, that I'm seeing a lot of different things, that I'm open minded, that I that I that I would want to listen to me if I was on the other end, because I would hope I would be learning something, not just. Not just saying something that another coach told me or saying something that I wish would happen or hope would happen, but what I actually see and what I know from my experience. And that's what I want to do with coaching again. So I definitely plan to coach, but when that is, I just don't know yet. And I'm sure our viewers and listeners have learned a lot from you. And last question for you, coach, when you look at the next season and you mentioned NIL, obviously I'm you're very familiar with the transfer portal and college basketball these days. It's very hard to project what next year's rosters are going to be like across Division One. But is there a team you have your eye on, not as a coach, to, to go to, but that you think could surprise next season theoretically? We saw Ohio State come together down the stretch. They have a bunch of guys coming back that were freshmen. I think Bryce Sensabaugh is gone, but... 
besides that, you have a lot of talent coming back That's a good to question. Columbus. Yeah, is it Ohio State? A- any other programs stick out to you? That- what, since you bring up the Big Ten, I'll go with Maryland. Uh, I think I think when you have outliers in that league in the Big Ten, teams that are a little bit different. We were like that in Indiana with our offense. Michigan was like that with John Beeline. When you have some differences. Now, it's not just the talent difference. Like Zach Eady forces you to defend them a certain, a different way. Or Trace Jackson Davis forces you to defend them a certain way. But I think Maryland, because of their ability to press, I think because of how Kevin sees the game, how he coaches the game, the recruiting that they can do uh, in that DMV area, uh, the, the, the access that they have, what shade they should have NIL-wise, I think is so important. I mean, this game, my last year at Georgia, first year of the NIL, we had two guys make $1,600. And $1,000 of that was from Crystal, the hamburger place. We had another six, seven guys make 600 You can't make it like that. Like it's like, and I'm sure Georgia's got a lot more than that now, but it's like you have no chance in this day and age at any level if you, if, unless you have people that are committed to helping you get to that place. Well, you get to the places like you mentioned with Ohio State, with Maryland, those are no-brainer places. I mean, they, they absolutely are. I, I, think, I think the ACC will have some people that, that could be really, really good inside of that league it's, that could surprise because outside of Duke, that league is wide open. Um, I don't know if I have another answer um, for you. I think I would look at it this way. The people that have done a really good job in a short period of time of building their programs each year are going to be able to continue to do that because that's a real art. I mean, it's a real trick right now to be able to get people to come together. And the people that do not rely on ratings, rankings, who's recruiting who, um, what the numbers were for certain people, the, 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 the greatest mistake you can make in the transfer portal is believe that they're coming into your program with an intention to make your program better. All right, you've got to be able to really look at, okay, who's open-minded enough to come in here and change? Who can make this jump from one level to the next? Like that length difference, that speed difference from the low and mid-major to the high major, I'm here to tell you, that's for real, right? Like that is for real. And that's why Florida Atlantic was such an outlier and other teams in Conference USA, well, those teams are, they're, they're, they're strong, they're physical, you know, they're aggressive and they have skill sets, Right. So finding players that have that, the people that can come in and get people to be about a team, to be about the success of others, to not come in as independent contractors just to get paid or just to get their, uh, their numbers up or just to get to the league, you know, those are the teams that are going to be successful. So I think you have to look at the program builders that have been builders in a short term right now. And certainly there's going to be the Tom Izzo's of the world and people that have destination schools and programs, right? Like those are, those are destinations. Tom Izzo is not going to, same with Matt Painter. They're not going to take back seats because people are always going to want to go to their school outside of high school. And more than likely, they're going to want to stay, right? Because, because, but in this day and age, there's so many places where everybody thinks the grass is greener somewhere else. The coaches that can really blend those players into their system UConn is a great model right now. Miami's a great model. Miami had young players. They had players that had been through it. And then they got players through the portal and through the NIL. UConn had some older players that they developed. They had some really good young players. 
And they got some players that they got through the portal. They all came together and they blended really, really well. That's easier said than done. And I think the coaches that show that ability and don't get away from that model are going to be the coaches that are going to be successful in this new era of college basketball. Yeah, and San Diego State is a perfect example oh, they're of that perfect too. Example. But they've been doing it that way for years. They've been Brian and Steve were taking transfers and building it in and taking some unknown guys. You know, it, 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 a Kawhi Leonard who maybe the world didn't all know about him. You know, like those those programs, they're not going anywhere, right? San Diego State's not going anywhere. That may not be a name that is a national name. Now they will be after now. But that's still, that's a destination program out West now. I mean, there's still people know you can go there and you can have success. You can be yourself and you're going to play in a sellout crowd and it's San Diego. I mean, so there's a lot of pluses to that. Now the key for Brian, will he all of a sudden decide that he's got to be a national recruiter, right? He did that at Michigan, but it was Michigan. As long as these people keep building their programs the way that they have and they're having success with it and they stay with that, they're going to keep having success. But again, it's the ones that can really coach this like their junior college coaches and that they can, they're they really, really comfortable with change and they're really comfortable bringing people together in short periods of time. They're the ones that are going to be successful unless they're the ones that can recruit the cream of the crop every year in Division One. But they're very few and far between these days. That is Tom Crane, 21 years as a Division One men's basketball coach led Marquette to the Final Four in 2003. And Obviously, people are very familiar with you going back to 2011-2012, Christian Watford and your facial expression <laughs> after Indiana knocked off Kentucky. I'll never get over that. I'll never get over that picture. I'll <laughs> never live it down, but I know exactly what I was what I was feeling that in that moment. And I guess that's what I look like when I'm feeling that way. thank you so much for joining outside shots today tom it's been a pleasure knowing you over the last five seven years whatever it's been and a lot of success hopefully for you as a coach again in college basketball down the road thank you i appreciate it we'll do it again i appreciate it very much eli that is tom crean and thanks for watching and listening to another edition of outside shots follow the lines on twitter at the lines us so long everybody